everybody back into Down the Line. As always, I'm your host, Carson Breber, and today we're going to be talking about the top 10 upsets in men's tennis history throughout the Open Era. And the strategy that I used in choosing which individual matches were most deserving for this list was basically... I did not value historical significance, so for example, something like Arthur Ashe defeating Jimmy Connors in 1975 Wimbledon, yes, it's as iconic as any quote-unquote upset in tennis history, but as incredibly dominant as Connors had been in 74, Arthur Ashe is the sixth seed, he's a you know three-time Grand Slam champion in his career, at that time he was a two-time, that ended up being his third, uh, and Connors didn't win a slam in 75, so yes, the magnitude is greater than a lot of these on my list, but what I'm talking about is pure, that guy had no business beating that guy, that was insane, and it was shocking in that sense. So I'm not necessarily giving props to significant runs throughout a tournament, we are talking about individual shocking matches, and so I'll go through all my honorable mentions, and I'll talk about why I left off some of the more traditional ones that you might think of when you think of historic tennis upsets, because they happen in bigger spots, maybe a semi or a final that's not what we're talking about today, necessarily. So, at number 10, we have Denis Istomin defeating number 2 seed Novak Djokovic, 7-6, 5-7, 2-6, 7-6, 6-4 in the 2017 Australian Open second round. And I went back and forth a lot on whether or not I wanted to have this one on my list. Ultimately, it's the one that I feel obviously the least strong about because it's number 10, but I thought that it was a decent one to fill this spot. The reason that I was tentative about it is because, yes, Djokovic was world number two, but of course, when we look back on this historically, we see this is a time when he is really spiraling in his career. His 2017 year is brutal. That goes into 2018, and even the end of 2016, he really struggled, but if you look at where he was in this point, taking out all hindsight bias and memories of where this turns, where he has off-the-court issues, where he's injured, and 2017 just turns turns into a disaster, you have to think about the fact that he had just won Doha, where he beat Andy Murray, and, you know, he was co-favorite to win this tournament at plus 150. He was the two-time reigning champ, so yes, it was clear that this was not early 2016 Novak Djokovic, and I think that we will get to a match that illuminated that for a lot of people, but this even took it a step further and was like, okay, something is really wrong here because this kind of stuff does not happen, especially not at the Australian Open. On the flip side of this, Istomin was world number 117. He was coming off of a 9-21 season, and ultimately, Istomin is a guy that I've always liked. I think that he's talented, and listen, for the 117th ranked player in the world, that's pretty darn good, but... You know, this should never, under any normal circumstances, have been a close match. Djokovic had won their previous five career meetings, beat him 1-1-2 at one slam, beat him 0-1 in another match, just drubbings, beatdowns, and on this day, Djokovic was just bad. 72 unforced errors, that was more uh, than he had winners, which is just really not something you see from a guy who is normally just the model of consistency, and yes, of course, he can attack as well as anyone, but he is going to make you beat him for the most part, especially if you're an inferior player, and um, that is not what happened. So this was, again, the start of a very dark time for Djokovic in his career. Not really the start, actually, but it was a serious turning point and sort of the point of no return, if you will. At number nine, I have the only non-Grand Slam match on this list, and the reason that that is the case is obviously... Uh, first of all, upsets are just more common when they're not in Grand Slams because of the best of three format versus the best of five format. Um, 
you know, obviously because the better players are going to have more of an advantage when the match is longer and it's just a larger sample to really determine who is the better player on that given day. And then also, I know I talked about how it's not really all that significant as far as this list if the upset came later in the tournament. I tried to avoid really favoring that. The difference in stakes between a Grand Slam and any old tournament is just too great. So, there's a reason that this is the only one that made it on the list, and this is the 1984 Cincinnati Open first round. Vijay Armitraj defeated John McEnroe 6-7, 6-2, Obviously, this is in the midst of what some people will tell you is the greatest season in tennis history from John McEnroe, and he was at his absolute peak of his powers even within this year at this point. He was 59-1. and His only loss was an inexplicable collapse against Yvonne Lendl at, in the French Open final, which of course was a tournament he never won in his career. So just the fact that he was so well positioned to win that tournament said enough about the form that he was in, and he had cruised through uh, the tournaments since then. He was really in absolute peak form. Meanwhile, Armitrage hadn't won a match at a slam that year, and it ends up being one of those weird historical oddities where McEnroe wins the first set and then goes down pretty easily in the next two. Armitrage then went and lost his next match in the second round to world number 46 Ramesh Krishnan. And then what's really interesting about this is McEnroe doesn't skip a beat. He goes out, finishes the year 82-3, and is dominant the rest of the way, wins the U.S. Open. It's just this really strange individual match where a guy who looked unstoppable lost to a relatively obscure player at this point in his career. Armitrage was a good player, but he was 31-84, and and again, I struggled that year, had not won a match at a Grand Slam through three of them. So, very strange. Uh, at the end of the day, does not end up hurting the legacy of McEnroe or the legacy of that year all that much, I would say. Of course, it's crazier if he, you know, wins this tournament and is 88-2 instead of 82-3. and That would be pretty ridiculous. But at some point, uh, it is always possible that there's just a weird match that gets you. It's just this was probably the most dominant stretch of tennis we've ever seen from John McEnroe, and it was disrupted in a pretty weird way. At number eight, we have a much more historically memorable upset. And I think that this is one of the typical ones that people think of when they think of, oh, biggest upsets. Maybe not this individual match, but this run. And that is Mark Edmondson beating Ken Rosewall 6-1, 2-6, 6-2, 6-4 in the 1976 Australian Open semifinal. Of course, this upset has been immortalized by the fact that Edmondson then went on to beat John Newcomb in the final and win the tournament and became the lowest-ranked uh, player in the Open era to ever win a Grand Slam, a record that has stood and will stand, by my estimation, for a long time because he was number 212 in the world. And if it were anything other than the Australian Open, which, of course, at that time, a bunch of guys didn't even play, and also he's Australian, so he's got an advantage there by nature, he would not have been in that draw, and most guys ranked 212 don't have a prayer at getting in a main draw these days. So it's actually, for the un Unbreakable Records episode that I just did last week, that probably should have been on there, because that one's going to last for a long time. So the flip side of this is, of course, Rosewall was 41 years old. Yes, he was the number one seed in this tournament, but he was the world number six overall. So compared to most of the people on this list who are at their peaks, or near it, they are basically, it's unthinkable that they could be beaten. Rosewall wasn't quite at that point in his career, because of course his career started, you know, he's winning a slam in 1954, this is 22 years later. But, 
He had been ranked world number two past Wimbledon 1975, which was just a few months prior because this tournament actually took place starting in December 1975. They call it the 76 Australian, though. He was four-time Australian Open champ, very established pedigree at this tournament, of course, his home country tournament, and he was the overwhelming favorite because there was a weak draw. Again, not a lot of guys played. Newcomb was the two-seed at world number 20. This is an older Newcomb as well, not a guy that's winning a couple slams a year. So everything was cleared for Rosewald to go ahead and pick this one up, especially once he gets to the semis. Meanwhile, Edmondson, this is the crazy part. This is why this has to be on this list. Yes, Rosewald was great. It's not as much about him as it is about Edmondson though. He entered this tournament with three career tour level wins, not in grand slams, not the Australian Open, across all tournaments. He had won three matches, even getting to the semifinals. He never really had to prove himself. He didn't have a crazy upset because, again, the Australian Open draw just sucked at this time. The highest-ranked guy that he beat before Rosewall was Phil Dent, world number 33, a guy that made a couple of Australian finals. Again, says more about the tournament than it does about Phil Dent. Um, and what's so ridiculous about this is with all of the great Australian tennis players, and you go, can go back to the fifties to, you know, Trabert and Lou Hode and Frank Sedgman and Rosewall and Laver and Emerson and Newcomb, all these great players. And even there have been, you know, not as many since then, but Pat Rafter and Leighton Hewitt, he is the last Australian to win the Australian open. 44 years, and it's this guy that compared to everyone else is so obscure and so random. Now, he did improve. This was definitely a breakout year for him. He finished the year ranked number 31, went 40 and 28 on the year, won another title. So, you know, this was a big momentum swing for the career of Mark Edmondson, the historic career of Mark Edmondson, might I add. But at the end of the day, no one saw this one coming, and for good reason. Rosewall was the favorite to win the tournament, and Edmondson was an absolute nobody. At number seven, we have the first appearance from a guy who is indisputably, to me, the star of this list, Rafa Nadal. He's going to be here a few more times, and I almost stuck him on here one more time. So he lost to Steve Darcis, 7-6-7-6-6-4, in the first round of the 2013 Wimbledon. Now, Nadal was ranked number five in the world at this point, which may suggest that this was either maybe a weird patch where he was playing lower quality of tennis or that he was dealing with tendonitis or another injury that might have plagued him throughout his career. But the only reason he's ranked so low is because within the last 52 weeks, which of course are included in calculating his ranking, he had had injuries. He missed the 2012 US Open and the 2013 Australian Open, which obviously are major factors. But he was playing a ridiculous level of tennis. He entered this tournament 44-2 on the year and actually, despite missing the Australian Open, was able to finish the year at world number one because he was playing such a high level of tennis. Also, you may think, well, Rafa has that weird four-year stretch where he just doesn't perform all that well at Wimbledon. And that is true. This is only year two of that. So, you know, obviously everyone's looking at the previous year's upset, which we will get to a little bit later, as that's a one-off because this is Rafa Nadal. He's perennially in the finals of this tournament ever since he reached his peak, and he's playing as good of tennis as he ever has. You could argue his start to this year, and I think it would be a good argument to make, was better than his 2010 year, which is, you know, obviously the best of his career overall. For Darcisse, this was his second career win at Wimbledon. He was ranked number 135 in the world, and he sustained an injury during this match. So he was actually unable to compete in the next round, and he did not re-enter the top 100 in this entire year. So, obviously, uh, this is a ridiculous one. I think that 
looking at it, you could really argue it should be higher. The Rafa being ranked number five thing is a little bit of a factor in it not being higher. But then again, he was playing tennis like world number one. And the fact that it happened in the first round is huge because stars of this level just generally do not lose in the first round. If someone's going to get you, you know, you're at least going to win a match. And the fact that it was Steve Darcy, who I'm sorry, is not a historically relevant player and especially not a guy that you would expect to find much success on grass just because of his play style. So it's a shocker. Uh, not Nadal's best, though. Not actually all that close, in my opinion. At number six is Sergei Stakovsky beating Roger Federer 6'7", 7'6", 7'5", 7'6", at 2013 Wimbledon in the second round. Same exact tournament that we were just talking about just one round later. Incredibly strange. Incredibly strange. So, I should have mentioned before with Nadal, he was tied for the second betting favorite in this tournament. Federer was right behind him. So, Federer seeded three. He is not nearly at his peak, but he had just won Halle. He was the reigning champ at Wimbledon and, of course, a seven-time champ who had also made 36 straight quarterfinals, which is an all-time record, and he hadn't lost this early in a slam in over a decade. So, this is not peak Fed, but peak Fed never lost early. This is still Fed, who's a top three player in the world, who is a consensus, you know, one of the top four favorites to win this tournament. Just a perennial star, a guy that does not get knocked out early. He's too good. He's too consistent. And for it to happen after Rafa, that's even weirder. You could debate which one is uh, more shocking. I would say this one because it's Wimbledon and because of the 36 straight quarterfinals. Yes, Rafa was probably the better player at this point. Uh, He was, in fact, even more highly favored to win the tournament. But... I do think you have to consider the fact that Federer just did not lose early. And then you look at what Stokowski was doing. He had won one previous match at Wimbledon. Same as Darcis. He was ranked number 116 in the world and was 6-9 in in tour-level matches on the year. So Stokowski, I would say, had a better career than Darcis, is a more memorable name, but... This is by far, you know, the his legacy is the fact that he beat Federer in this incredibly strange match. And this was not, by any means, one of the better parts of Stokowski's career. Because there have been times where he's been a top 40, borderline top 30 guy for stretches. He was not here at this point. He was comfortably outside of the top 100. At number 5, we have another one from this era, including some of the same players that we have just discussed very recently. This one, 2014 Wimbledon fourth round. The breakthrough of Nick Kyrgios, a wild card, 19-year-old in the tournament, defeating Rafa Nadal, 7-6-5-7-7-6-6-3. Remarkably, they each only broke each other once. Kyrgios hit 30-something aces, as he's expected to do, and was really just playing out of his mind in this tournament. And it was such a thrill to watch. I remember it so distinctly because he was so powerful, he was so electric, and it was all of the best parts of Nick Kyrgios that last to this day without as much of the bad stuff. And it's funny because I remember I was reading an article from this time to sort of familiarize myself with what happened in this match. And one of the headlines was Nick Kyrgios, Seth Rafa Nadal, and basically said that he didn't used to care much for tennis, which is funny because he still does not care much for tennis. It's not something that he got over. But of course, you know, when you see a brilliantly talented 19-year-old beating the world number one, Rafa Nadal, you're going to assume that this is a guy who likes the sport that he's playing, but not really. So the reason I have this higher than Darcis is because Rafa was world number one. He was seeded second uh, because Djokovic had more pedigree at this tournament, but and of course because of his Rafa's last two Wimbledons having very strange early exits. 
Rafa had the third best odds to win this tournament. He was at, I would say, maybe the second peak of his career. If you want to consider 2010 the first peak, this 2013, early 2014 stretch, he was pretty incredible as well. And then you have, on the flip side, Kyrgios, ranked 144 in the world. As I mentioned, a wild card. He had two career wins at Grand Slams, so he was phenomenally talented. He had already gained some momentum, beating Gasquet 10-8 in the fifth set in the second round, but he was unheralded at this point, and he had caught the attention of some, uh, but no one expected this. No one expected him to be the lowest-ranked player to beat a world number one since 1992. 22 years. Uh, I'm not sure if that's at a Grand Slam. That might be a Grand Slam-specific stat. Another crazy stat from this is that this is only one of two Slam quarterfinals appearances for Nick Kyrgios in his career to this point. He has not made one since 2015. So a lot of disappointment since he first burst onto the scene, but I just remember the electricity of a dude hitting forehands over 100 miles an hour consistently. And it almost... I mean, yes, it was absolutely shocking that Rafa lost... But it's so strange. It's so strange how I think that Rafa's reputation when it comes to Wimbledon is not all that tainted because outside of these four years, he's been phenomenal. But this four-year stretch is ridiculous, and I actually don't think he's made a final since he lost to Djokovic in 2011 at Wimbledon. I'm pretty confident in that. Number four, we have another Rafa-Wimbledon upset from this four-year stretch. I understand if it's a bit repetitive, but I can't leave it off just because it's repetitive because each of these was shocking. This was the most shocking because it was the first. Lucas Rasol, that is a name that will forever live in my mind and I think will live in the mind of a lot of tennis fans because of what he pulled off on this day. Beating second-seeded Rafa Nadal 6-7, 6-4, 6-4, 2-6, 6-4 in the second round of 2012 Wimbledon. Again, this is before any of the other weird upsets that we just talked about. Rafa had made the final in his last five Wimbledon appearances. He had 2-1 to one odds to win the tournament, which was narrowly second to Djokovic, so he was considered almost a co-favorite. Meanwhile, Rosol was ranked number 100, had never made the main draw at Wimbledon previously, and was almost 27 years old. This was not a young upstart like Kyrgios, where, of course, those guys are unheard of, but you get excited and you think, oh, there's something there. This was a guy who had been a journeyman who had been struggling on the Challenger Tour, but with Rosol, you could always see the upset potential. And I remember watching him at Indian Wells when he very nearly beat Andy Murray uh, in a three-set match because he was so explosive when he was at his best, so powerful, big serve, big forehand, attacking tennis, and it's that same Kyrgios model. That's Those are the most exciting upsets. The other ones often have more to do with something going wrong with the top player. This was just a phenomenal level of tennis from Rosol. And of course, he did improve his career from this point. Ended up winning a couple titles. I'm not sure if he ever cracked the top 30, but I know that he was near it. So a bit of a turning point. But this was the second career top 10 win for Rosol. His previous was Jurgen Meltzer, who... Who would consider him a top 10 player, except, of course, he was ranked there, so I guess you have to, but just not a perennial top 10 guy at all, and an incredibly strange victory that ended up setting this really weird pattern in Nadal's career. So, let's move on. That was uh, part one of the Rafa segment. He may make another appearance later on in this list, and I think that you probably know what I'm talking about, but... Let's go back to the 80s because we have been with these 2010s guys, the big three, for a while because, of course, 
Generally, they don't get upset at all, which is what makes it more shocking when it happens, except for Rafa, who likes to get upset at Wimbledon. Number three is Peter Duhan defeating number one seed Boris Becker, 7-6-4-6-6-2-6-4 at 1987 Wimbledon. You can't find betting odds from this far back, but got to imagine that Becker was the significant favorite. He was the back-to-back reigning champ, world number two, but seeded number one because Wimbledon just does whatever they want. Duhan, on the flip side, ranked number 70, started this year ranked number 301, so his quality picked up, but this is a guy who did not win 50 career matches. He won 49 matches in his entire career versus Becker, a six-time slam champ who was basically at the peak of his powers at this point, and literally, in the tournament before this in Queens Club, Becker beat Duhan 2-4 in the first round en route to the title there. And what's crazy about this is this wasn't a five-setter. It was not an incredibly close match. You know, you see the tiebreaker in the first set. That's a big momentum get for Duhan. But this one is ridiculous because of who Duhan is. He's not even as relevant as Rasol or Stavkovsky or... I guess he's on a Darcy's level, but I think that you would say that Darcy's had a better career than him. Istomin had a better career than him. He is exceptionally irrelevant historically, um, and yet he got this win over a guy who was basically just dominant at Wimbledon at this point in his career. But if we are really talking about dominance here, then the top two are in a class of their own as far as my top 10 upsets list. Because up to this point, it's been a lot of absolute shockers, players ranked outside the top 100 or pretty darn near it, beating these all-time great players. That is not what the top two are. The top two are players who at this point in their careers, it was unthinkable that they could lose to anyone under any circumstances and players who had some talent, but were nowhere near top of the world, end up dethroning them. Number two, 28-seeded Sam Querrey beats number one Novak Djokovic 7-6-6-1-3-6-7-6 in the third round of 2016 Wimbledon. This is one of two historic Querrey over Djokovic upsets that I remember both distinctly, the other being 2012 Paris when he beat him in a dramatic three-setter, but Djokovic heavily favored in the overall. Throughout their careers, he leads 9-2, and I mean, we talked about Djokovic at the 2017 Australian, where he was on a downwards trend, where yes, I guess it's deserving of a top 10 spot, but you could kind of feel it coming that something was wrong, and then it ended up unfolding that something was very wrong. Nothing has ever been more right than 2016 Novak Djokovic. This is 1984 McEnroe, except maybe a little bit better. He held all four slam titles, had just completed the Nole Slam, had won back-to-back Wimbledons, was currently holding the all-time record for ranking points at any point in the history. Now, of course, they did end up, they changed the system back in, I want to say, the early 90s to where they basically doubled the points. But still, the most points that anyone has ever been, which by the the ATP's metrics, the most dominant 52-week stretch in tennis history. He was 46 and 3 in 2016 after going I believe 82 and 6 in 2015 when he won 3 slams. He was the odds on favorite to win Wimbledon this year as far as betting odds go, which means it was considered more than 50% likely that him, one of 128 players would win the tournament. You only ever get those odds really with Rafa at the French and you probably got them back with Federer Uh, back during his Wimbledon dominance before uh, he got dethroned by Rafa. And the difference is, basically every time those guys delivered, 
That is what is so shocking about this. He also had better than two to one odds to complete the Grand Slam. I think he was plus 190, which is you bet $100 that he can complete the Grand Slam, you get 190. That is unfathomable. This, I mean, this is, you know, maybe the greatest tennis player ever. This version of Novak Djokovic may be the greatest tennis player ever. He also had been to the finals of eight of the last nine Grand Slams that he had appeared in, had been to the semis of 23 of the last 24, and had made 28 straight quarterfinals, which is the second longest streak in tennis history to Federer's. 23 of 24 semis, eight of nine finals, had won five of the last six Grand Slams, unparalleled dominance. And then you have Query, who of course had an up and down career and his peak was probably when he's 18 years old and, you know, his friends are all calling themselves the samurai because there was excitement. He was clearly very talented. He was ranked world number 41. He had lost in the first round of five of his last six grand slams and he made the second round in the other. So have a guy who's won one match in his last six grand slams was 4-6 and six in his last 10 matches overall, just 4-3 and three on grass before Wimbledon. He played three tune-ups, didn't perform all that well, versus maybe the greatest tennis player of all time in this current form. And this is the beginning of the unraveling, I would say. It's not comparable to what he ended up doing in 2017 because he does bounce back from this. He makes the finals at the U.S. Open. He lost his number one ranking in almost unthinkable fashion because you have to remember, he had the literal ranking points record at this point. His lead was just absolutely insurmountable until, of course, it was surmounted by Andy Murray at the end of the year. But Djokovic got a heroic break at 4-all in the fourth in this match after losing the first two sets. He wins the third. Then he's serving for it at 5-4 in the fourth, serving for the set. And at that point, if he gets it back to two sets all, you got to think, as incredibly mentally tough as he is, with the level of tennis he was playing, he would have to be the overwhelming favorite. And he just couldn't close. Missed a weird little volley pickup and lost in the tiebreaker, and this was just a moment of humanity that did not exist at this point from Novak Djokovic. This is as shocking as Rafa losing at the French ever, which is number one. 23 seeded Robin Soderling beating world number one Rafa Nadal 6-2-6-7-6-4-7-6 at the 2009 French Open in the fourth round. Now, of course, there's reasons why this happened. Rafa was reportedly dealing with some injuries. Um, his parents were getting divorced. He was apparently sick, according to Joe Wilfried's saga. That just came out. At the end of the day, yeah, those are factors in the outcome of the match. They are not factors in how shocking it was because Rafa did not lose at the French. And when I say that, I mean he had never lost at the French. 31-0 ever since he first showed up as a plucky 18-year-old and just won the damn thing because he could, had won in all four of his appearances, was world number one, started the year 44-4, and four. so this is, again, I was talking about peak one of Rafa, 2009-2010 is, I would say, his absolute peak throughout his career. He had one to four odds to win the French Open. That means one man was thought to have an 80% probability to win a tournament with 128 participants, and I bet nobody batted an eye, because who would ever bet against Rafa in the French Open? To this day, he's only lost one other time, and that was to Novak Djokovic, who, in my opinion, is his greatest rival. Obviously, most people would consider it Federer. That's fine. I say look at the head-to-head -head record. Um, and a guy that was just... I mean, there's a massive difference between Soderling and Djokovic, and I also think that because... Soderling ends up 
becoming a top five player. He ends up getting all the way to the final this year. Then, incredibly, he makes the finals again in 2010. We think, you know, yes, it's crazy that anyone beat Rafa, and it's weird that it was Robin Soderling of all people, but Soderling was a great player. Soderling would have been one of the top 10 picks to do it. Not at this point. Soderling was, again, seeded 23rd. He had never reached the fourth round at a slam, and that wasn't due to lack of experience. He was 24 years old. He had been around. He just wasn't that good yet. And he beats Rafa. It is, I would say, the most shocking outcome in tennis history. Uh, You know, let me know when Rafa loses again at the French. It may be in September of this year with all the weirdness that's going on, but I would never bet on it in a million years. Although actually one of my one of my hot takes before this year started was that Rafa would not win the French. That was more pro team and Djokovic. Uh, but again, when push comes to shove, you never pick against Rafa at the French Open. And this was this freak incident where it happened. So it didn't have to be someone outside of the top 100, outside of the top 50 to beat Rafa for that to make the list. It basically just had to be someone other than Djokovic, Federer, Murray. And that's what it was. It was just unthinkable at this time. There's a bunch of honorable mentions because there have been a bunch of crazy outcomes throughout tennis history. I'm going to go through all of them, and I'll explain why they didn't make the list. My first one-off, maybe, you could argue, 1986, first round of Wimbledon, Robert Seguso uh, beat Connors. Connors was world number three at this point, so it's not typical in the sense of he was the overwhelming favorite to win the tournament or anything like that, and Seguso was ranked 31. He was a good player, but Jimmy Connors, like Federer, did not lose early. He had been to seven straight slam semis, had made the quarters at 34 of the last 35 slams he'd played in, and his only loss in that stretch was in the fourth round. Last time he lost before the fourth round was 13 years before this tournament. And also, like Becker and Duhon, they met the tournament before in Queens Club, and Connors won three and four. So this is a freak outcome, but at the end of the day, this was not Connor's peak, so it's not quite ridiculous enough for me to have it there. And of course, way more people would think of Ash over Connors before they think of Seguso over Connors, and they're over a decade apart. Two very different Jimmy Connors we're talking about. Dustin Brown beating Rafa Nadal at 2015 Wimbledon in the second round. Again, four straight years where he doesn't make the quarters at Wimbledon. Brown beat him in four. I remember watching this match. It was awesome. Vintage Dustin Brown, super weird, slicing all the time, coming in. He was ranked number 102 in the world. He had to qualify for the tournament. He was 5-11 and 11 entering the tournament on the year. But the reason I don't have this one, it's not just to avoid being repetitive because I think, you know, I didn't shy away from putting Rafa on this list. It's that this was a stretch where Nadal really was not fully himself, at least was not his best self. He was world number 10. He was only 34-11 and 11 on the year, which, yeah, that's good. But it's not peak Rafa by any stretch of the imagination. And a weird fact about this is Brown is 2-0 versus Nadal in their careers. He also beat him in Holly 2014. Two meetings on grass, two wins for the exciting German. Now I'm going to address some of, I think, the first ones that people think of. So we've got a couple Pete Sampras selections here. Sebastian Bastel beating him in 2002 Wimbledon and Federer beating him in 2001 Wimbledon. Here's the reason that I don't have either of those on here. Because yes, Sampras won seven of eight Wimbledons uh, through 2000. 2000 was his last Wimbledon title. But in these two years, he had clearly taken a step back. 2001, he's seeded number one, but he's actually ranked world number six against Federer. Federer was just the 15 seed. So yeah, he was young. He hadn't proven himself. But I think that Sampras probably felt better than he was at this moment because he had 
overstayed his welcome a little bit, winning Wimbledon titles just because he was so exceptional at that specific tournament. And then you look at 2002, which is more intuitive because Bastel, you know, who is he? He's ranked 145. He's a lucky loser. He's 27 years old with one previous win at a Grand Slam. That's insane. That guy's going to beat the greatest Wimbledon performer ever, pre-Federer. So at this point in history, without our future goggles. But Sampras, yes, he was seeded six. He was ranked 13th. He just wasn't all that good. Of course, it's incredible that he goes on to win the U.S. Open right after this because what an incredible way to end one of the greatest careers in tennis history. But I, without, you know, obviously in the moment, this felt absolutely shocking because it's Pete Sampras. But when you look at it removed from the bias of the moment, yes, Sampras at Wimbledon was a different beast, but Sampras just wasn't himself anymore. Ash Connors, I already talked about that. That has to be an honorable mention. Ivan Isevich at 2001 winning Wimbledon. Of course, that's famous because he was the wild card. He was world number 125. He's one of only two unseeded players to win Wimbledon in the open era, along with Boris Becker in 1985, which we will also talk about. But the highest seeded player he beat was Rafter, who was, I believe, seeded two. He was actually world number 10. He also beat Safin, who was world number three. Safin was not uh, exceptional at Wimbledon throughout his career. And even Isevich, yeah, it had been a weird couple years. He's only, I think, 30 years old in 2001, but he had just sort of fallen off the map. But he was a three-time runner-up at Wimbledon, including in 1998, just three years before. And people knew what he was capable of. He's a historically significant player who, yeah, he had fallen off the map, and this was a shocker. But at the end of the day, the peak value of anyone he beat is not high enough, and he as a player was too good for me overall, even at this point in his career. I mentioned Becker in 85, Wimbledon. Uh, Becker, yeah, I mean, this was crazy, but he was ranked number 20 in the world at 17 years old. He was proven as a good player, and the highest ranked player he beat was fifth seed Anders Yard. So, point to me the individual match that I'm going to pick from that. Is Becker over Anders Yard that much of an upset? I wouldn't say so. Another young guy winning a slam. We've got a couple more of these. Michael Chang at the 1989 French. This one, there's a legitimate case for. He beat one seed reigning champ Yvonne Lendl in the fourth round which is incredibly impressive, but Chang was the 15th seed. He was already a really good player, and of course, no one would have picked him to win a slam. No one would have picked him to beat Lendl even, but when I went with um, guys, you know, in the top 30 upsetting people, and there were only two on this list, none in the top 20, none in the top 15 as Chang was, it had to be because the player they beat was at an unprecedented level of dominance historically. Like, there are two exceptions to the rule on this list where generally the player has to be just irrelevant at this point for the most part. Chang was too good to meet that mark. Same thing with Mats Wielander, uh, who also beat Lendl in 1982 in the French Open fourth round and route to his winning a title. He also beat Vitas Gerolaitis, the five seed, Jose Luis Clerc, the four seed, and Guillermo Vilas, the three seed. That's crazy, but Wielander was ranked number 18 in the world. Again, already really good and it's not enough to break my rule of the opponent has to be, uh, you know, either one player has to be just insanely dominant or the other player has to be basically irrelevant. My last mention is one that was very close. I ended up, I talked already about uh, the 2001-2002 Sampras defeats. He just wasn't at the peak of his powers anymore. This one you could argue fits into the uh, Rafa Djokovic clause where you couldn't believe that Sampras would lose at Wimbledon in 1996, and he did. He lost to 17th seed Richard Krychek, who ended up winning the tournament. This was Sampras' only loss in an eight-year stretch. He had won the previous three titles. 
Krychek had lost in the first round of the previous two Wimbledons. He had never reached the quarters there. But at the end of the day, goes on to win the tournament. He was a really good player. He was ranked 13 in the world. He ends this year in London as a top eight player. So obviously it was crazy that Sampras lost. And yes, that's you know part of the reason he ends as a top eight player is because he wins Wimbledon. That's a pretty big boost. But he was already ranked 13. And you could make an argument for this one. I would certainly hear it because of what Sampras at Wimbledon meant. But I also think you can't think about this as seven-time uh, Wimbledon champion Pete Sampras. This is three-time Wimbledon champion Pete Sampras, and then he goes back and responds in the next four years. So couldn't find betting odds for this either. It's just too old. I'm sure he was definitely a convincing favorite, but at the end of the day, Krychek was a bit too good uh, to put this on my list. So that's the list. Let me know where you agree. Let me know where you disagree. Again, as I've said before, I know this isn't the most traditional top 10 upsets list, but that's kind of why I like it. It's really, you know, it's not about the historical impact necessarily. It's just about how did that guy beat that guy. So that's going to do it. I've been Carson Brever, and this was Down the Line.